the problem we face when a new disease emerges, first we need to identify the disease and find a detection tool. But the problem we faced and we are still facing is that we need a fast and reliable screening tool to stop the disease. Hi, I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and you're listening to Dr. Annelise Chabert, a veterinary-trained epidemiologist whose research spans the health of humans, animals, and the broader ecosystems in which they live. She is a senior lecturer in the School of Animal and Veterinary Science at the University of Adelaide, and her research journey studying diseases has produced fascinating results. But I think there is still so much more to do and to understand that I'm always overwhelmed. And I can tell you that I'm at night I kept thinking of where we are at and how much we have still have to accomplish. So I think it's really <laughs> the beginning of this story. Annelise is a pioneer in disease detection who is developing revolutionary screening methods to transform the way we tackle pandemics. Together, we uncover unexpected ways to prevent and limit the spread of disease. Listen closely, as you might be surprised to find out that the answer has been under our nose all this time. This is the Discovery Pod. Annalise, welcome to the Discovery Pod. Thank you for having me. And you're senior lecturer in the School of Animal and Veterinary Science and the School of Public Health. So what is the work that you do and how is it helping solve some of the major challenges in society? Well, first, my field is One Health, which is the connection between human health, animal health and environmental health. So it's really like uh, connecting the dots. And in this project, I tried to solve one of the big issues we've got when we've got emerging diseases appearing. And that's not the first one. We are now facing SARS-CoV-2. But uh, from my relatively short career, I've been confronted with SARS-CoV, MERS-CoV, and now SARS-CoV-2. So, hang on, there's, uh, there's a few different names there. So, uh, emerging diseases, what are emerging diseases? Obviously, we've heard of COVID, and uh, I mean, most people will have understood that as a, an emerging disease, but what, what are emerging well, diseases? They are basically new diseases. Either they just literally emerge, and that's the reason why we discover them now, or they were there, but they never been transmitted to a, a large population. When they're actually entering a new country, we say, oh, they are emerging. Yeah. And then we've got re-emerging diseases that they were there before. We kind of managed to control them. They got extinct almost in a, in a population or in a country. And then they come back so that they are re-emerging. So uh, what's an example of a re-emerging disease? The smallpox? Did I hear that smallpox has come back? Yeah. yeah. Smallpox, yeah. Yeah. It would be a re-emerging disease. Right. Or it can be a, a, a disease that's, for instance, in Australia, tuberculosis has been controlled in the animals. We don't have any more TB in the livestock. If TB was coming back, then we would say it's re-emerging. Yeah, okay. Mm. So we want to avoid that, don't we? We want to avoid that, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and in your area of work, you work in the detection of those diseases, is that right? Yes, I work to try to understand what's actually is causing the emergence. I work a lot on illegal wildlife trade, so really the root 
of the issue. And then I also work on detection and management of outbreaks in large population, animal or humans. So I always work at a population level. Yeah. So I, I've heard of a term zoonoses, and it's kind of one of those terms where these new terms come to light uh, at various periods in time. And zoonoses was really one of those terms that came to light really in the early stages of the COVID infection. Mm. So what are zoonoses? They are, it's a term that is used to um, describe the microorganisms, can be virus, bacteria, parasites, that go from vertebrate animals to humans. And then we can have a reverse zoonosis where humans give it to animals too. Mm. So it's basically a disease jumping from animal to human. A lot of people are surprised because 75% of the zoonosis are coming from wildlife. I actually don't think it's surprising. We are all sharing common ancestors and I can understand why bacteria and viruses don't make a difference. They are quite ubiquitous, or most of them, so um, they can go to any body. Mm. And uh, I guess most famously, or uh, mo uh, most people would be aware, HIV and, and AIDS was a, a zoonose coming from yes. primates as well originally. Exactly, that was linked to um, so the bushmeat consumption. Mm where they had a, the primate had a virus called SIV, and SIV mutated and became HIV. And why did it happen at that time? It happened at that time because at that time in Africa, uh, there was a lot of social disruption, and that caused a lot of movement of people. They also had change in their culture and behavior, which allowed the virus to transmit very rapidly and easily in communities. So there was obviously an ecological component, but there is also an historical and social component. And I think for COVID is also very inter interesting that COVID is happening now. We are incredibly connected. That's the reason why it went so fast. Mm. And, and we also have a lot of contact with wildlife, especially in some countries. So we always have the ecological and the environmental component that has to be understood, but there is a social component that is, I think, of most importance. So whilst nomadic life has been a part of human civilization for many thousands of years, our recent ability to travel the globe in mere hours has meant that new diseases can spread rapidly, wreaking devastation. The way borders snapped shut and whole states locked down in 2020 and 2021 really illustrates the threat we now face in our interconnected world. But what does this threat look like and what can we do about it? And, and what about the connection with, with animals? I mean, is, is it the case that we're actually kind of getting more exposure now to zoonoses because of the increased rate of environmental degradation and increased potential exposure to, uh, to those systems? 100%. The, the last... 100%. 100%. <laughs> yeah. If you just take the example of the Nipah outbreak, why... Sorry, what's Nipah? Nipah is a, a virus. It's a Nipah virus. It's a paramyxovirus. But it's a virus that emerged in uh, 1998 in Malaysia. Hmm. And why did it emerge? Is because bats actually excreted on fruits that actually went to piggeries. And why were the piggeries just very close to the bats is because people expanded their farm and their piggeries and their orchards in 
this area where bats were. And so the bats gave it to the pigs, the pigs gave it to humans, mm. and then humans died because of that. And then we had a human-to-human transmission that started in Bangladesh and India, and then it was much more difficult to control. So it's really our interaction with wildlife. So that's uh, kind of an indirect interaction is because we go in the environment, but there is also all this illegal trade and legal trade where we actually use wildlife and that's increasing the contact. Yeah, so we're just increasing our exposure almost on every front Exactly. Uh, to, to these kind of systems. Plus, we are more and more using intensive farming of livestock, which obviously livestock and piggeries and um, poultry. And basically, we are creating little uh, viral or bacterial bomb because if anything comes in, the replication rate in this environment where animals are very dense environment. It's a great environment to create an explosion. It's the ideal uh, (laughs) ideal environment for a disease bomb, uh, is it? Yeah, exactly. And you've worked in in a number of different countries, haven't you? So obviously you're French originally, uh, but also Botswana, uh, the UAE. Do you travel around the world uh, identifying outbreaks of some of these latest diseases? Is that the kind of work you do? So I started doing wildlife conservation. So I was trying around the world trying to save wildlife populations that were on the brink of extinctions. And along my journey, I encountered a lot of outbreaks of different diseases and outbreaks that were also of concern to human population. I work on tuberculosis and on brucellosis. And then... I started to work more and more on the human side and I'm an epidemiologist and I'm a veterinarian by training. So I do a lot of, of things with outbreak on animals and I've worked in the UAE eight years doing management of outbreaks in large, very large population of animals. But then I uh, realized that we really have to take care of the humans. And it is interesting because a lot of medical doctors have a very good understanding of obviously clinical cases and treating one individuals. But as veterinarians, especially veterinarians who work on large outbreaks, we've got this understanding of population health. Mm. And I thought that's a good thing that we can bring to the medical field. So you bring a strong understanding, really, of the dynamics of disease, how that spreads quickly and easily uh, exactly. through populations. And uh, with the uh, increased incidence of these new diseases which are arising, finally, your your expertise is applied, that you have the time now. But you, you also, as, a, as an epidemiologist, you also work on the detection of the disease. So tell us a little bit about when a new disease emerges, what can we do to actually detect uh, that disease? So um, the problem we face when a new disease emerges, first we need to identify the disease and find a detection tool. But the problem we faced and we are still facing is that we need a fast and reliable screening tool to stop the disease. All screening tools are based on recognition of a genetic material, PCR. This is actually very reliable, but it's not fast. It's not fast enough to stop an outbreak. Or we use antigenic tests which are not very reliable (laughs) and are fast, but we really need to have a fast and reliable screening tool. So at the moment, we've got fast or reliable, basically. Exactly. So it's the PCR versus the rat test, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And since the very beginning of the pandemic, I was scratching my head and I was thinking, (laughs) what can we create that is going to be both fast and reliable and also is not going to be too difficult to build? and not too resource intensive. 
So what did you find? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I found the perfect tool yet, but I did find some interesting thing. Diseases, and not only COVID, but COVID is one of them. Diseases have scent. That means that we can smell it. And that is the true revolution because we have always been checking disease, looking for either antigen or genetics, but we've never tried to find disease looking at volatile organic compounds that we can find on our sweat or on our bodies. Stopping the coronavirus. What we do now to stop the spread? Stopping the spread depends the spread of infection. Stopping the spread. So stop the spread. To stop the spread. To keep stopping the spread. And potentially limit the spread. Stop you spreading the virus. Stopping the spread. Stop the transmission chain. Stopping the spread depends the spread of infection. Dr. Annalise's research identifying the scent profile of disease adds a whole new dimension to how we handle detection. So when somebody's ill, they emit a different uh, exactly. scent because of the disease. Exactly. So through their sweat or through their skins mm. or just through their pores, they will be emitting that, that different scent. Exactly. And the fact that we can now develop tools to detect this scent, I think, is the revolution. And we are just at the beginning. I think the dogs helped us to realize that. And we used dog. But I think there is still so much more to do and to understand that I'm always overwhelmed. And I can tell you that I'm at night, I kept thinking of where we are at and how much we have still have to accomplish. So I think it's really <laughs> the beginning of this story. So hang on, dogs. So dogs have a sensitive uh, smell. We, we all know that. And they're able to smell uh, individuals who are infected with, yes. with COVID and other diseases. Yes. So we started uh, to realize that because we gave sweat sample to uh, dogs and we call that imprinting. So we asked them to sniff the sweat sample of someone that is infected. We knew the person were really infected because at the, at the beginning we were taking samples from people who were at the beginning of the infection. So they were PCR positive and they were symptomatic. Yeah. So we gave the sweat sample. So a sweat sample is very easy. You put a piece of gauze under the armpit of someone for two to five minutes, and then we gave that to the dog. So we gave that not directly. We put that in what we call a scent chamber. Mm. We asked the dog to sniff it. When the dog sniffed it, we gave him a reward, which is a food or toy. And then when he does that, he well, when he sniffs the, the COVID-positive person, he will sit and stare, and then we give him the reward. <laughs> and so we did that, and then we say, okay, now let's see if they can find... COVID-positive person that they've never been in contact with, a new set of samples among COVID-negative samples from the same environment. Right. And all of our dogs, we were working with the Australian Border Force, all of the dogs managed to find the positive sweat sample. So we knew that dogs could detect it. And mm. then we did a, a very large trial with 1,500 uh, samples and wanted to establish what were their sensitivity and specificity, so how accurate they were at finding the positive person. And also, we didn't want them to falsely indicate someone who was negative. So we, we, we did some uh, experiments, and we saw that they were very good in this kind of control setting. But we still didn't know what they were sniffing. Hmm. We knew that they were able to do it, but without knowing what they were sniffing. Now yeah. we made much more progress, but at the beginning, it was very empirical. So fast and reliable. 
And basically, uh, they could be deployed at, at airports, like uh, sniffer dog for, for drugs. I mean, it's the same. Yes. And what, what what breed of dog are you are you using? So we are and we're uh, using Labrador, and we did deploy them at the airport. So at the airport, we <laughs> ask people to, to check people's claims. <laughs> <laughs> we ask people to give a sweat sample uh, when they arrived. Obviously, they, it's a long flight; they were all sweaty. And <laughs> perfect. Yeah, it was perfect. And then they gave us a sweat sample. The problem at the airport, to be totally honest and transparent, is that it was slowing down the process of people disembarking. And even so, we ask only a two-minute sweat sample. The fact that you have to ask someone, you have to take the details and so on, it was slowing down the process. So we could see at the airport that it was working, but it was not the fast and reliable screening tool that we wanted. Hmm. The fast and reliable screening tool that we wanted was a dog sniffing people directly hmm and then giving us an answer. And that's what we did at the hospital. Could you train a dog to detect a whole different range of diseases? You can, but then you you lose when the dog is giving you an answer, which is you a seat and stare, <laughs> you don't know what it is. That is exactly the reason why none of the dogs that we've used in our program were trained to detect drugs, because we didn't want a dog sniffing someone and then giving a seat and stare, and we don't know if the person just had a, a bit of a regression or actually sick. Yeah. So how long does it take to train a dog for a new disease? Really depends on the dog and how switched on they are. Between three to four weeks. That's how, it, that's how long it takes not to imprint the dog, because to imprint the dog with a new disease, it takes two days, two mm. to three days. But after the dog has been imprinted, we need to make sure that he can find it among control samples and then among negative samples. And that takes longer yeah. and because we cannot release a dog that is not at least 95% sensitive. And how accurate are dogs compared to PCR tests? So if you ask me this question on sweat samples, so that on the goes, dogs were between 95 to 97% sensitive, so very sensitive. Mm. And the specificity was along those lines. When start looking at people that are infected and the dog is sniffing the person directly, the accuracy is going to drop quite a lot. I would say, I haven't done the statistic, we, we will receive the result from the hospital tomorrow, but I would say that we are going to be much lower because there is a lot of other factors that can influence the decision of the dog. For instance, we had a case where the people were so positive, like we had a case where we actually brought a dog in a room of someone that was positive, the room was full of, of, this, of this scent. And we actually saw the dogs got overwhelmed. The dog didn't know where to sit because the, the scent was so strong. So actually, the dog <laughs> sat outside of the room. He didn't even have to come in. So he was already sitting. And then when we told him, you go in, he was overwhelmed. So, you know, these kind of challenges is, is you have to see it to understand what's happening in the, in the head of the dog. That You have to it, know dogs. Yeah, you? you have to know dogs to say that. <laughs> you know that there is something, but he's overwhelmed by what is happening. And that actually is interesting because I had this discussion with people who are uh, training dog to detect drugs. And he told me he had the same situation where when they make big seizures and the dog doesn't know where to sit because this, this it's just, it's just overwhelmed by yeah. the scent. Yeah. So all these kind of challenges we still have to work on. <laughs> on sweat sample, very easy. On people, where actually it's a very fast and reliable tool, it's a oh, fast tool at least, it's, it's a bit more challenges. 
with up to 300 million olfactory receptors. How can we harness the power of the dog's nose? Adelaide Airport has beefed up its defence against the threat of foot and mouth disease. Detector Dog Extra has been recruited to take on a regular beat in the luggage department. Dogs that can sniff out cancer, their keen sense of smell, can help save lives with early detection. They want to get on top of the infection even faster than PCR, where you have to drive somewhere, get a swab, get a result the next day. They want to have a result within 30 minutes. We now know that dogs like Max are smelling the tiny volatile chemicals given off by cancerous tumours. Most dogs can do this, they just don't know that we're interested. We've seen the use of dogs for detecting COVID at airports with over a 95% success rate. So how can we deploy dogs to sniff out the unique peptide cocktail created by other diseases? So if dogs are so amazing, why, why aren't we already using them for a, a range of disease detection? So they are very amazing. And as I told you, they are incredibly accurate in control settings. When we deploy them at the airport, they were still accurate at the hospital I have to check the data. We just finished the trial now. But we could see that dogs at some point were fatigued. There is sometimes a lack of stamina. How so, long? How long? Like uh, half an hour? Or? No, no, they can work uh, days. But the problem is the number of positives they find. So if they don't find many positives, they start to, yeah, to, to lack stamina, to, to, to be a bit bored. They start and, to get bored. And, and it's a repetitive <laughs> task for them. And I mm. think the task is a bit too repetitive for the dog. I think in an environment where there is a lot of positive and where they actually have to screen lines of people, it's working very well. We uh, actually screened students in the dormitories. Students loved it and dogs loved it <laughs> because it was a high reward environment. We did find quite a few positive during the peak of the outbreak. So that's one uh, barrier. The second barrier is a, is a human barrier. First, it's a very new tool. Each dog is different. So it's very difficult to standardize dog tool. It's like each dog is different. Each training team is different. It's not like a PCR machine where once you've calibrated it, it remains the same or more or less the same until the next calibration. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, as I told you, it's new. So I don't think our public health experts were even aware at the beginning that dogs could do it. So it's it's a change of, of culture and also accepting the fact that an animal is helping us to find a disease. It's not always easy. And thirdly, I know that when we were at the airport, a lot of people preferred to not give a sample because they didn't want to be detected. <laughs> so at the hospital, we didn't have this challenge at all because everyone coming to the emergency department wanted to know. Like yeah, they, yeah. they were going to have a rat test anyway, but they all wanted to know, <laughs> am I positive or not? Yeah, it's it's different level of challenges. I think it was great to show us that it's feasible. I think it's, it is a great tool to uh, screen a lot of people in a short period of time. But the fact that when there is no more COVID, like we, we've got very few cases now, to keep dogs motivated is difficult. We are actually using what we call a training aid, which is now what we use to train the dog, not the COVID, the peptides. Mm. Uh, we are using that to train the dog. And we're actually putting that somewhere, sometime in their environment so they find it and they get excited. So it's like hide and seek. Exactly. You, you deliberately hide that and yes. then they get excited. Yeah. So it's a game every day. It's a game. And also it's reassuring us that the dog is finding what he's supposed to find. Yeah. 
But as you say, you know, a drug a sniffer dogs are already deployed at airports, so it's not really a big step to go into disease detection as well, is it? Because no, we already have the infrastructure in place. It's not a big step. And for some diseases, I mean, we should clearly do it. Like, it's, it's, it's not a huge step. But it's a change of mentality, and that sometimes takes a bit of time. Okay, yeah. But what are our options for moving it away from the dog? What are our options for kind of constructing a, a kind of a, an electronic nose or some other kind of detection system for, for these type of scents? So obviously we can uh, build electronic nose, but the reality at this stage is that the electronic nose are much less sensitive than dogs. And it's not only for COVID, it's for all the other diseases that they trial electronic nose and dogs dogs are still superior. Wow. So, yeah, so we, we, cannot, we cannot compete with a dog at this stage. And I'm saying dogs, we know that other species can also do it. Some people have been using rats, mm. and in Tanzania, they are using Gambian rats to detect people who are infected with tuberculosis. Some people are using ferrets. U.S. is actually looking at uh, using ferrets to detect avian influenza. And I'm myself very close to try using rats for other diseases too, mm. just easier. Obviously, on a deployment point of view, dogs are easier if you want to deploy them in front of someone. But if you are working with samples, yeah, you can use other species. Electronic nose, I think, has a great potential, but we are not there yet. That's interesting. Mm. So could you have a situation where you have dogs visiting people in the regions like with, with a, a detector uh, van, uh, maybe screening for other diseases, not only COVID, but, but cancer for a range of other emerging diseases, skin cancer, for example? Yeah, well, actually, it's a, it's a very good question. Skin cancer is the reason why we know that dogs can do it. The story is that in 1989, a person who uh, had a lesion uh, on her back and the dog kept going to the lesion and then she went to check it and then she was told oh it's actually skin cancer and that was because of her dog that kept nagging her and sniffing this lesion that mm. she went to check it and and removed it soon enough so we know that dogs are very accurate at detecting melanoma and dogs could be used to screen uh, for melanoma. That's, that's something that we know since 1999. And the, um, the research really took off in 2013 on dogs and cancer. But quite a few teams are working on dog detecting cancer, especially melanoma, because we know it working, it's working very well. But people now are working on prostate cancer and colorectal cancer and so on. So we could have a situation where everybody has their own personal detector dog, couldn't we? Yeah, that's quite interesting. During this project, I did receive quite a few long and heartbreaking letters of people living with a condition and they couldn't be in contact with anyone who had COVID or who has COVID because that would put them at risk. And they were asking of having uh, a dog with them all the time. And at that time, my response was always, the problem is that the dog are very good when they are motivated our dogs can detect from 200 to 400 people per hour. And that's... God, uh, you work them hard, don't you? No, but that's what they like. <laughs> they are motivated when they can work a lot and very fast. So a lot of people, 200 to 400 people per hour is, is their norm. 
So um, when someone has a pet, it's never going to meet 200 or 400 people per hour. Like the person might meet two people, five people, 10 people a day. Mm. And that's the problem we've got with this kind of situation where the dogs will get bored. When I was mentioning earlier, the lack of stamina is it's exactly that. It's just when they don't have enough people to screen. Yeah, don't they just love contact? They love contact with people and they get a lot of feedback, I guess, don't exactly. they, from yeah. meeting new people as yeah. well. Yeah. So, Annalise, if you were awarded a major grant tomorrow, we're talking millions of dollars or you had an investor that came to you and said, uh, look, this is great work. Do whatever you can uh, and explore what you can. How would you make history? Oh, I know, I know what to answer <laughs> on this one. With COVID, we've realized, and you know, I told you at the beginning, we didn't know what uh, were the dogs sniffing. Now we know. We've got an idea. We know that they are sniffing a cocktail of peptide. And this cocktail is a signature. And I think for all the disease that can be detected by dogs, we have to find this signature. When we've got very clear understanding of what is this peptide signature, then we can find other tests which are not electronic nose to actually detect this signature, hmm. and that can be based on sweat sample, for instance. So it's really non-invasive, and that could change the face of the world because it will actually revolutionize our way of detecting diseases. So you would profile the peptide, uh, yes. the peptide cocktail, uh, and then you design a machine that could uh, automatically detect this. Yeah, and we can already already do that with proteomics. And uh, yeah. so it's the proteomics part is already covered. The problem is actually to find this signature for each disease of interest. Annalise, thanks very much for being on the Discovery Pod. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Annelie Chabert gave us so much insight into the connection that humans and animals have on Earth. Not only in the way diseases spread from forest to farm to human communities, but also in the way we can employ animals to help prevent the spread of dangerous diseases, something we're all too familiar with today. Thank you to Dr. Annelise for sharing her story and insights on the Discovery Pod today. And thanks as well to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review. Rate us five stars. And while you're at it, why not share this episode with your friends and family? We'll be bringing you new and fascinating insights from the forefront of research and innovation every fortnight. So hit follow now to ensure you never miss an episode. Next week, Dr. Alice Jones joins Discovery Pod to share with us her research to reduce atmospheric carbon emissions whilst conserving precious aquatic species. Towards our mitigation of climate change, even though it's not directly sequestering carbon. So, see, it's a bit of a, a wonder plus then, <laughs> isn't it? The algae, I guess. <laughs> because, sure, there, there are options for it to be involved in kind of... Alice and I went on a deep dive into how we can sustain our marine ecosystems and reap the benefits for a better future. If you're hungry for more fascinating research, listen out for our next episode. In the meantime, if you have a topic you would like us to explore, get in touch at podcast at adelaide.edu.au. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and you're listening to The Discovery Pod. 
Brought to you by the University of Adelaide. So, what do you want to know next?